from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, January 24th. So you could be forgiven for waking up confused as you heard the news this morning about last night's New Hampshire primary because the two big headlines seem to be contradictory, right? Headline one, Donald Trump beat Nikki Haley decisively in the early state where she was supposed to have the best chance to beat him. Trump won by about 12 points. And Nikki Haley gave her most anti-Trump campaign speech yet in her remarks to her New Hampshire supporters, turning up the volume in her campaign as they head to South Carolina, where the recent polls have Trump way ahead by like 30 points. So here is Haley last night, like you probably not heard her before. The other day, Donald Trump accused me of not providing security at the Capitol on January 6th. Now, I've long called for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75. Trump claims he'd do better than me in one of those tests. Maybe he would. Maybe he wouldn't. But if he thinks that, then he should have no problem standing on a debate stage with me. So we will start there to discuss the state of the race with Atlantic Magazine staff writer McKay Coppins, an award winner from the White House Correspondents Association for his coverage of the Trump presidency and author of the book Romney, A Reckoning, which came out in October. Some of you will remember he was last on the show for that book. McKay's current article in The Atlantic is called You Should Go to a Trump Rally, and of course he'll explain why. McKay, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I was watching the news channels last night when the polls closed at 8 o'clock, and I'm seeing the numbers pile up for Trump from around the state very quickly. They're explaining where Haley underperformed, what she needed to pull even or pull ahead. And then the AP called the result for Trump really fast, like 10 after Mm -hmm. 8. And then right away, Nikki Haley comes out to give her speech, and boom, it's like the clip we just played, taking it to Trump like she has not done up to this point after getting, you know, the floor wiped with her. How do those things fit together? I thought that was really interesting. Coming into New Hampshire, the the talk was basically about how well Nikki Haley had to do to stay in the race, right? And all the pundits were on TV handicapping the margins. And, you know, I was texting with Republican sources, strategists, donors who uh, were supportive of Nikki Haley's campaign. And they were saying, oh, you know, maybe it needs to be four or five points or it needs to be in single digits or or whatever. And 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 what's interesting is that Nikki Haley, I think, basically went out there and gave that speech to answer the question of of would she drop out very forcefully, right? That there had been this idea that um, you know, if she didn't do well enough in New Hampshire, she'd quickly drop out and maybe even endorse Trump. Um, I think she is trying to show with that speech that she is not going away. She's not ending her campaign. She's going to keep taking it to Trump. And and actually, as you point out, ratchet up the rhetoric. I, I think the one, uh, you know, response that I, I heard from a lot of Republicans after that speech was, you know, where was this Nikki Haley three months ago, five months ago? Why why wasn't she coming out against Trump from the very beginning? Uh, but, you know, maybe it's better late than never. 
Yeah, and it's all strategy. We don't have to look back at why she didn't uh, do it earlier. But suddenly, Haley is running by questioning Trump's mental competency and challenging mm-hmm. her him to debate her to prove it, like we heard there. That's one thing. And she started running harder on age. We even heard in that clip, one of the members of the crowd just shouted, geriatric, uh, <laughs> little ageism there uh, on, on the part of that individual. But age and on electability. She said whichever party doesn't renominate its 80-year-old will probably mm-hmm. win the election. And so here's another clip as she said this about what Joe Biden might want. With Donald Trump, Republicans have lost almost every competitive election. We lost the Senate. We lost the House. We lost the White House. We lost in 2018, we lost in 2020, and we lost in 2022. The worst kept secret in politics is how badly the Democrats want to run against Donald Trump. They know Trump is the only Republican in the country who Joe Biden can defeat. You can't fix you can't fix the mess if you don't win an election. A Trump nomination is a Biden win and a Kamala Harris presidency. Once again, very boisterous members of the crowd. I don't know if that was all scripted or what. Um, but McKay, it is true that the polls show Haley beating Biden in a hypothetical matchup and Trump only about tied with him. So do you think as she tries to close the big polling gap in South Carolina, which is the next primary, she starts to lean into that sort of very practical electability argument much more? I think that's probably her strongest argument. I remember a year ago talking to a Republican pollster who had been conducting focus groups with Republican primary voters. And she said, you know, the the stuff that the media obvi- uh, often wants uh, Republicans to use against Trump, mental acuity, for example, um, you know, some of the, the lawsuits against him, even the, you know, sexual assault uh, allegations against him, that stuff doesn't work on Republican primary voters. What does is the argument that he would lose an election, right? If you can convince Republican primary voters that he will lose to Joe Biden, it's the most practical argument that wins them over. And so I think electability is going to be her argument going forward. The the problem she's going to run up against, because, because she's right about one thing, and that, that, that little clip you just played, Donald Trump has actually been very effective at concealing the fact that he's basically a political loser when it comes to electoral politics. He won one election in 2016 and since then has presided over a series of political disasters for his party, losing the White House, the House and the Senate. But the reason that he's able to maintain this idea that he has some kind of magical hold on on the Republican electorate is because he's really good at beating Republicans, right? Mm. He's he, you remember the 2016 Republican primaries? He he wiped the floor with that field. He in the midterm elections that he wades into, he's really good at beating other Republicans in Republican primaries and getting his handpicked candidates nominated. They often don't fare that well in general elections. And so what what's happening now is once again, he has beaten all but one 
Republican uh, primary opponent. She's still hanging in there, but in, in the two races that have happened so far, he's beaten her. If she wants to make the electability argument, she is going to have to start winning some primaries, not just coming in, you know, distant seconds or even close seconds. Clearly. There are so many interesting angles from the last few days. Um, let me uh, pick a few here. One is I noticed in that electability clip that we played, she used Kamala Harris as a scary monster. Did mm -hmm. you catch that? Like if, you know, if Trump runs, he will lose and then Biden will be president. Oh, and we know that means then Kamala Harris will be president, meaning Biden's right. going to die in office. Uh, so, she, so, so she used Kamala Harris as a scary monster. What'd you make of that? And had you heard that before? That, well, not necessarily from her, although it's possible I've missed it. But that is consistent with a strategy that we've seen from Republicans over the last few years. I remember early in the Biden presidency, uh, writing a piece about the conservative book publishing industry and the specifically what they called the Biden problem, which is that for to sell these conservative books, they need a boogeyman, right? They need a villain. And uh, over the last 30 years, they've had a series of obvious villains, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama. Nancy uh, Pelosi, all, big one. Nancy Pelosi. Sir, the, the, they, they all moved books. You could write books about those people. You could put them on scary looking pictures of them on the cover and conservative book buyers would snap them up. Joe Biden didn't work as a villain. And, and in part, that's because hmm. the predominant conservative narrative about him is not that he's a villainous radical trying to destroy the country. It's that he's feeble and, uh, you know, losing his mind. And that might, you know, be fun to talk about on Fox News, but it, it doesn't move books and it doesn't uh, scare people, right? If they think of Joe Biden as just this kind of old, confused man, they might not like the idea of him as president, but they're not scared of him. And so I think what you saw Nikki Haley doing was pointing to Kamala Harris, who actually is... Uh, somebody who a lot of Republicans are, you know, filled with, you know, not if hostility toward fear of uh, resentment toward for all kinds of reasons. And so I think making her the face of the Biden campaign to the extent that uh, she can or that other Republicans can, that'll be a strategy I think we'll see all all this year. Yeah. So I guess it's worth saying out loud that I usually think portraying Harris as a threat is playing the scary black woman card like biden is bad enough but if he dies you're going to have the radical in the white house which isn't really based on policy differences between biden and harris that they're citing just ooh, uh-oh kamala harris who you know trump makes fun of her first name to make it sound foreign like he still says barack hussein obama as you point out in your article about the trump rally and it, it's really race and gender baiting so tell me if you see it differently but um maybe that's what we saw from you know a, a woman of color herself in there's, new hampshire last night there's no question that's that's a part of it i remember talking to conservative book editors back then and they they would admit as much off the record or on background they'd say you know look you put a picture of of an angry looking Kamala Harris on the cover of a book, maybe that 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 scares Republican voters into buying it. Right. Um, that said, it's also true that Joe Biden is seen. His reputation is that of a kind of more moderate, pragmatic Washington deal maker. Right. Kamala Harris had kind of shaped her image as more of a, you know, progressive 
champion, right? She came out of California politics. She was more vocal about issues like abortion, uh, so these social issues that Republican voters are really motivated by. So there is, I think, a policy and, and political component to it. But mm -hmm. the, you can't separate that from her race and gender, no question. Did you see this? Two-thirds of the voters last night in the exit poll report that I saw said they do not identify as MAGA. Mm -hmm. And then they looked back to Iowa, and they said even half the voters in Iowa said that, that they do not identify as MAGA, according to the entrance and exit polls there, where, of course, Trump won bigger. Does that suggest an actual electability issue for Trump in the general, or is it just words? It might just be a case of the difference between, you know, um, the most hardcore Trump supporters and then people who will vote for him despite not seeing themselves as th their identities based around that. Right. And, uh, New Hampshire, especially, is kind of a state full of contrarian voters. They don't like to see themselves often as kind of associated with a movement. They see themselves as discerning voters who are picking their candidates based on their own, you know, reasons and judgment. Um, that said, uh, you know, I that that was notable to me as well, that the, the core of Trump support um, might be smaller in the Republican Party than I think a lot of people realize. Uh, you know, I, I think it's still notable that in both Iowa and New Hampshire, um, Trump is getting around 50 percent, 50, 55 percent of the vote that, you know, that means that there are a lot of Republican voters, maybe not the majority, but a very large swath of Republican voters who are ready to move on from Trump. Um, and, you know, what those people do if he's the nominee again is going to be a really key question. You know, maybe not all of them will vote for Biden, maybe a very small percentage will. But if they stay home, if they're not willing to donate, if they're not willing to knock doors or work for the campaign, volunteer, get the word out to their friends, that's going to be a real problem for him in, in swing states. Here's a text from somebody in New Hampshire who voted yesterday. It says, I am a New Hampshire voter registered as an independent, and I voted yesterday. Most of my life I've been a registered Democrat, but when we moved up here, I became an independent. It's important to state that New Hampshire makes it really easy for independents to vote in primaries. My wife and I rode in Joe Biden yesterday, but I know a bunch of Democrats, though registered as independents, who voted for Nikki Haley in the Republican primary and plan to vote for Biden in November. So an interesting take. And, yeah, the independents mm -hmm. can choose which, um, uh, which, which primary to vote in. And there was no meaningful Democratic primary yesterday. But, McKay, it's probably worth a moment anyway to say um, – uh, that there was voting for Democrats yesterday, not very meaningful because officially their first primary is in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were like 20 Democrats on the ballot, not including Joe Biden. And yet he won handily by people writing him in. So I don't That's know if right. it means anything. It's like a footnote to history, but does it mean anything? Well, his his, uh, his opponent, Dean Phillips, I think will be the the kind of an answer to a Jeopardy question one day, right? I think he he got in, he got 20% of the vote or something. But yeah, look, I, I, I don't think there's any question about Joe Biden's, you know, renomination at this point. Um, it, but, but this does raise an important point to make. So yes, New Hampshire 
uh, is makes it really easy for independents to uh, vote in either primary. That said, South Carolina is also technically an open primary. Um, and so are a number of states going forward uh, on Super Tuesday. These are, uh, you know, there are a number of states where you don't have to be a registered Republican to vote. Nikki Haley is going to count on those independents' support. That said, the fact that South Carolina is actually officially holding a Democratic primary um, probably I, I could see that hurting Nikki Haley because a lot of Democrats sure. in New Hampshire probably, you know, changed changed their affiliation to independence so that they could vote for her um, in South Carolina. They're probably just going to vote for Joe Biden. Right. And that's going to be a problem for her because he she actually, needs those people. He actually cares there. He wants yes. to run up his right. vote there. Um your article in the Atlantic, you should go to a Trump rally. I know you got to go in a couple of minutes, but I want to make sure to touch on, on your article. Um, by way of background, I'll tell people you went to a lot of Trump rallies when you were covering the 2016 campaign, but you wrote you hadn't been to one since 2019. What were you looking for? And in a soundbite length, what did you find? What I found was that I, like I think a lot of Americans, have had managed to sort of tune Trump out. You know, I I, I had this image of him based on my years of watching his rallies. Um, but being there in person gives you a tactile sense of what's at stake in this election, both from his move, the movement that he commands, talking to his supporters and watching Trump speak himself. I, I watched an hour and a half of Trump up on stage talking. It, on the one hand, it's you know darker and more shocking than you can imagine uh, if you're not paying close attention. On the other hand, he also seems to have lost his instinct for entertainment, the way that he was able to hold and uh, you know capture people's attention in 2016. I'm not sure he has that. And and the point that I'm trying to make is that we have started to see Donald Trump as an abstraction. And I think if you want to be a good citizen, regardless of what party you support, where you are in the political spectrum, you need to uh, tune back in and really watch this guy to understand what is at stake in 2024. You're, you're making a media point here to some degree, too, right? That yeah. it was bad of the media to give his rally so much oxygen in 2016 because it was like, oh, what is he going to say? But it helped uh, that entertainment spectacle help fuel the rise of Trump, who many people consider really dangerous. Now it's become like normalized. So well, they're not and, looking and, at really outrageous, scary things that he says. So, yes, but I would also add to that that we're now making the opposite mistake. We, we overlearned the lessons of the first Trump term to where now, you know, we don't take his speeches live. We don't cover every social media post. And, and, and I get it. I get the instinct. But at the same time, I think that's allowed a lot of Americans to just kind of stop paying attention to him. And he's gotten in many ways more radical and more extreme since 2016. And I think that Americans need to tune back in and pay attention to that. I know we're at the end of our schedule time. Uh, if you got to go, just tell me and it's fine. But I, I would extend you for a couple of minutes on on this point. Um, if you have the time, yeah, so you yeah, just sure. tell me. Um, so here's an example of what you were just saying from his Manchester, New Hampshire rally on Saturday, uh, that for people who are paying attention, strikes them as Trump leaning into wanting to be an authoritarian, a strong man in the way he praised Hungary's increasingly authoritarian and culture war based leader, 
Viktor Orban. Listen to the words. There's a great man, a great leader in Europe, Viktor Orban. He's the, he's the prime minister of Hungary. He's a very great leader, very strong man. Some people don't like him because he's too strong. It's nice to have a strong man running your country. So he taunts the country of the United States by using the term strongman and praising it and praising right. Orban, who is that. Is that the kind of thing you want people to see at his rallies and why you wrote the article to some degree? That's right. I mean, that that's one of the things. I do think that the authoritarian um, tendency that has always been subtext to his campaign has become much more you know, on the surface. He talks about wanting to be a dictator for a day, he talks about, um, you know, want, uh, b b using the Justice Department to go after political enemies. He, uh, you know, we, we at The Atlantic recently published an issue called If Trump Wins that just goes through all mm, the implications right. of another Trump term. You take some time to read that. This isn't kind of wild speculation from, you know, uh, alarmist writers. This is uh, based largely on what he and his closest political allies say that they want to do uh, if if he gets back into the White House. I would urge people to read that issue and, and to, again, to, to start watching his speeches. He is being very clear about his uh, lack of care about any kind of democratic norms, uh, any kind of constraints on the president. And I think that it's important to understand what he will do if he gets back into office. And I don't think you can really fully grasp it unless you are, you know, going to his rallies or at least watching them in full and really taking the time to listen to him. I know that that sounds unpleasant <laughs> to a lot of people, to to your listeners. I mean, there's a reason that I, I stopped going. I had other assignments and a book project, but, you know, I think that it's time to tune back in. We're, we're, this is the this is the moment. It's an election year. He is going to be the nominee most likely. I think we need to we need to start paying attention again. I'm going to stretch your goodwill by another thirty seconds because I think you'll like this. I think you've inspired at least one listener to try to attend a Trump <laughs> rally. Elijah in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Uh, big fan of the show. Um, I just wanted to say I'm curious about the guests' um, opinion about attending the rallies as a form of protest. Um, I think that the lack of um, norms on the part, the part of his base is a huge part of the story. And I wonder if um, civil obedient protest in the tradition of King and Gandhi could bring out the nature of what's going on with his base in a way that might be informative to other citizens. Mm. Um, it's a great question. I have been, you know, uh, like I said, I, I've probably attended 100 Trump rallies in my life. Some of the scariest ones were those where protesters showed up, disrupted the event, uh, trying to make a point, you know, about immigration or another issue. Um, and if some of his supporters would surround them, scream violent threats at them, shove them. Uh, that happened, I think, just recently at a, a Trump rally. It is, uh, you know, I, I obviously am all in favor of protest of any kind. I think that's part of what makes our country great. Um, but I, I would, I guess, just say as a note of caution that, um, yes, Trump supporters in many of these events will get, uh, you know, physical with protesters. And so if you go there planning to disrupt the rally, just be prepared for, for those consequences. But to the caller's point, I think it could, yes, illustrate 
kind of the nature of his movement, at least a certain uh, strain of his movement. Atlantic Magazine staff writer McKay Coppins, also author of the book that came out in October, Romney, A Reckoning, and now his new article in The Atlantic called You Should Go to a Trump Rally. Well, you convinced Elijah at very least. And (laughs) McKay, thanks as always for coming on. Really appreciate it. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.